Mark chapter 15. And then if you would, once you found Mark chapter 15, need some coffee? <laughs> Don't look. I saw someone yawning over there. Um, I always drink coffee when I go to church. No problem. Mark chapter 15 and Isaiah chapter 1. If you can stick your bulletin in Isaiah chapter 1. Now I feel bad. I'll yawn if it makes you feel better. Mark chapter 15 and Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to be going to both those places shortly. We have come to the place in the book of Mark where we're talking about the cross. We started the book of Mark uh, almost two years ago. It'll be two years on September 4th that we started studying the book of Mark. We're almost finished. Just a few more lessons. We'll finish it this week. And today we come to the cross, which stands as the pinnacle of history. Everything before that moment in history looked forward to what God would accomplish through the cross. Everything since that day looks back to what he completed and won for us upon the cross. And our future and eternity are determined by the work of the cross. It stands as the pivotal crux of history. We're going to look at it today after we pray. Lord, thank you that you gave your son to die for our sins. And uh, Lord, it's so easy for us to say that, but we don't always understand the depth and the scope and the reality of that. And so Lord, speak to us today. Instruct us about what that means. Instruct us about the price that was paid, the truth of that and the power of that. And and now the forgiveness that is offered to us and the freedom that comes in that. The freedom not only to be forgiven, but to forgive others, to lay down grudges and hurts and pains and rights and anger and to be delivered into a life of peace and joy that you promise for now and for eternity. Lord, thank you. We know today that we are so messed up in so many ways, but God, you're perfect. And you gave your perfect son to save messed up people. Lord, teach us how glorious that is. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read some verses here, commenting as we go a little bit. And then we'll go back and look at some details. Um, We left off last week in Mark chapter 15, verse 20. Let's back up to verse 15 of Mark 15, just for some context. Mark 15, 15. And wishing to satisfy the multitude, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. And they dressed Jesus up in purple, and after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they kept beating his head with rods, spitting at him, And kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his garments on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Verse 21. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers along with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. If you have the NIV, you'll see that verse 28 is not included in your text, but it is in the margin. The translators of the NIV, the the manuscripts that they were using, some of them did not include verse 28. And in their their, um, translating, they chose not to include it in the text, thinking that maybe it wasn't in the original manuscript. We'll deal with that in a little bit and see why it's not a big deal. Verse 29 And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. 
And those who were crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down from the cross. The reason that they refer to Elijah there was local folklore or local superstition that believed that Elijah the prophet would come and minister at times to those who were suffering and to those who were in need as they were suffering righteously. And so really it was a sort of mocking. He claims to be this righteous king of Israel. If he really is, let's see if Elijah comes and rescues him. Bit of cultural context there. Next verse, where are we? Verse 36, thank you. Nope. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of Jesus saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There we have the execution of Jesus Christ upon the cross. You remember that last week, We saw that series of six trials. We talked about the fact that Jesus had three religious trials and three civil trials. And they culminated in the severe beating of Jesus. He had a beating before the religious leaders, and then they beat him before the Roman leaders. And we talked about the scourging, that the scourging was when they would strip him naked, tie him to a post with his legs hanging on the ground, and the Roman soldier would take the cat of nine tails, nine leather bands with bone and metal woven into them, and they were trained to beat the victim from the back of their neck to the back of their knees. They were so proficient at it, and it was so horrific, it would have ripped the flesh from the bones, exposing all of Jesus' vertebrae, and his kidneys, and his spleen, and his other innards would have been exposed. You remember that I shared with you, you may have seen Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. He made a cognizant purpose decision not to portray the scourging as violent as he was. Many men, when they were scourged into Rome, died because of the scourging, because of a loss of blood. Jesus suffered horrifically before he even got to the cross. The worst was yet to come upon the cross. But I remind you last week that according to the Bible, we saw that though it was horrendous, it was not meaningless. You'll remember the prophecies that we read of it in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Let's look at them again. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. So he carried away our griefs, our sorrows. We saw last week that that can be translated as sicknesses and as pains. And by his scourging we are healed. We saw that the New Testament applies that and the sufferings of Christ to both spiritual healing and physical healing. Peter first applies it to spiritual healing in 1 Peter 2.24. It says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, spiritual things there, for by his wounds you were healed. There he quotes Isaiah 53.5 and applies it to our spiritual healing, our being renewed, sin being removed, and being able to live for righteousness. But Matthew applies Isaiah 53.4 to physical healing. Let's look at Matthew 8.16 and 17. And when Jesus had come to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, And he cast out all the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were ill. In order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. 
There the Holy Spirit and authoring the New Testament tells us very clearly that in the sufferings of Jesus, there is accomplished for the Christian spiritual healing and physical healing. Both of them are in the atonement. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of everything having to do with salvation comes when we see the Lord face to face. When we are in heaven, then we will be completely free from the influence of sin and temptation and the destructive power thereof. And then we will be completely healed and renewed in our physical bodies as we're given the glorified ones prepared for eternity. But in this lifetime, We're free from the power of sin and we're able to ask the Lord to heal us physically. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. But he is able. The wonderful thing is we can come to him and ask him for that healing. Last week I invited people forward and said, hey, if you want the Lord to heal you, just come ask and he may do it. And um, Becky, where are you, Becky? Becky, just stand up for a second. There's sweet little Becky. Turn around, let the people see you. There she is. Sit down, Becky. (laughs) Becky... Came up, came up last Sunday and said, I've had a migraine headache for five years. I'm in pain every day for the last five years. And, and Lord, heal me. And Pastor G and DJ, a member of our prayer team, laid hands on her and the Lord healed her. In an instant, the headache was gone. And she said, this Sunday is the first time she's worshiped the Lord pain-free in five years. The sufferings of Jesus Christ are not meaningless. They were not trivial. There is a healing accomplished through his sacrifice. But we see that the beating was so severe that in verse 21, we're told that Jesus was not able to bear the cross. He was not able to physically carry it. Remember that in verse 21. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, to bear his cross. Cyrene was in northern Africa, modern Libya. So this man was from Africa. He was a member of the Jewish faith. He's there for Passover, celebrating. And Romans were able to make anyone in Jerusalem do anything they wanted at any time. Jesus is collapsing under the weight of the cross, and they grab this guy, you, Simon of Cyrene, and he's the one who carries the cross. Now, what was carried by the victim who was going to be crucified was not the whole cross like we generally see. It was just the cross beam, the one that went horizontally. It's called the patibellum. And it weighed up to 100 pounds. The vertical pole was, a, was already fixed in the ground. The victim would carry this horizontal one to the place where he would be crucified, weighing up to 100 pounds. The Romans would have the victim take the longest route through the city because they wanted it to be a declaration to the rest of the citizens. Rome is in control. You rise up against Rome... And this will be your fate. And so Jesus would have been required after his scourging, after all that he went through. Remember, he had been up all night. He had been wrestling with the reality of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had experienced hematidrosis, an actual physical condition coming from severe stress where the blood underneath the skin comes from the pores of the skin. Hematidrosis, hema meaning blood, drosis water, tie ties it together, I think. Hematidrosis. After that, he was brought to six different trials, walking around through Jerusalem in the middle of the night, beaten severely, and then scourged. Jesus was in severe, critical, physical condition. And we're told in John chapter 19, verse 17, he was able to carry the cross for a while, but finally he collapsed under the weight of it near the gate of the city. Now, this collapsing under the weight of the cross and because of the sufferings, it brings to mind once again, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that verse that we mentioned so frequently. It says, God made him, Christ Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God made Jesus to be sin on our behalf. And part of that is reflected in the physical sufferings of the cross and the events leading up to the cross. The beating, the marring, the collapsing of Jesus is a picture of sin. And it is a picture of the effects of sin. I want you to turn now to Isaiah 1. Keeping your finger here, go to Isaiah 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 2, 
Listen, O heavens and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Here's the word of the Lord. Sons I have reared and brought up, speaking of Israel, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Listen, if ever God could be perplexed, though he really can't, but he's expressing it in those terms, he's saying this is unbelievable. I have reared my sons Israel, and an ox knows who its owner is, and a donkey knows where to get food, but Israel continues to rebel against me. My people don't know and they don't understand. It's unbelievable. Then he begins to describe more what the situation was in verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, or as the NIV puts it, loaded with guilt. Offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? Begin to recall in your mind now. Jesus being blindfolded and being hit over and over again. And those who were beating Him, taunting Him, saying, Prophesy, who will hit you next? It is a picture of Christ becoming sin. Here is God's picture of sin. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. That is a picture of sin. That is how God was viewing Israel in their rebellion. The effects of sin had them bruised, welted, beaten, and they were weighed down with iniquity. That's God's perspective. Maybe you feel that today. Maybe you've been doing things your own way, and you just feel that weight of sin. Things have gotten so out of control. It's become such a mess. Lie after lie, situation after situation, bad move after bad move, and now you just feel that burden of guilt, that weight of iniquity. Maybe you feel beat up by sin, collapsing under the weight of the cross as Jesus was collapsing there as he was a picture of sin. Well, look what the Lord says in verse 18 of Isaiah 1. Come. Read that. Isaiah 18, verse 1. Come now. Wait a minute. He just told his kids, you're dumber than an ox. You're dumber than a donkey. You're brutal. You're brutal. You're, you're beaten. You're bruised. You're an absolute mess from head to toe. The head is sick and the heart is sick because of the effects of sin. Now, if I was God, I would say, get away from me, you disgusting slime. Aren't you glad I'm not God? God is not like me. He is wonderful and merciful and loving. And though we may not view our sin in the same way, he sees the sickness of it and the destructiveness of it. And instead of telling us to go away, he says, come now. Come now. Let us reason together. Have you ever done that with a child of yours? Anybody have kids? My son is almost five. He's just old enough to reason. And sometime when he gets in trouble, you know, I'll send him to his room and I go in there. He's got such a sensitive little heart. When I send him to his room, he's always crying and he's underneath a blanket and he's holding his little beard. (laughs) And all he did was throw a block at his sister or something, you know, but no big deal. But he's in there just loaded down with that feeling, just that feeling of guilt and sin. I say, son, come here. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. I don't want him to suffer in that. I want to restore him. Son, come here and let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Even though you are beaten and bloodied and bruised and stained with sin, I will wash you white as snow. I will cleanse you. But you see, you've got to recognize, you've got to recognize that you're a sinner for that to happen. Otherwise, you can't come and reason with God. He says, come and reason. Just sit down. You're a sinner. You've blown it. You have done wrong. But I did not send my son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Come, let's reason together. I will remove the stains. I will remove the hurt. I will remove the pain and the perversion and the brokenness. Maybe you feel that weight, and that's what you need today. Maybe you don't feel that weight. Maybe you're just going through your life and living it and it's going, you're just saying, well, this is just life and I, I, I don't feel guilty and I don't feel bad and this is just the way it goes. Listen, 
It's the same situation that Israel was in, and Israel says, you're dumber than an ox, you're dumber than a donkey. You need to recognize the destructive nature of sin and then come and be forgiven. But the choice was put before Israel, and the choice is put before you. The next verse, Isaiah 19, uh, 119, sorry, Isaiah 119. If you consent and obey, then you will eat the best of the land. There will be blessings and wholeness in your life. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Sometimes we don't realize the effects of sin. I hope that today, as you begin to think about the sufferings of Jesus Christ, God made him sin. That is a picture of sin, that destruction. I know a story of a woman some over 30 years ago. And um, she got in trouble for something. It was in the early 70s, and she wound up in prison. And while she was in prison, a minister came and visited her and shared the gospel with her and said, listen, God wants to forgive sin. He wants to forgive you. Jesus died that we might be forgiven. And she's sitting in that little prison outfit behind those prison bars, looked at this pastor and said, but I'm not a sinner. And he went, wait a minute. You're, you're behind bars. You're behind bars. It's, it's amazing how blinded we could get. Just call it what it is. It's sin. All sin is against God, and he is desperately calling for you to be forgiven, to be washed white as snow. Back to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, we pick it up in verse 22. Talked about the weight of the cross, Jesus becoming sin on our behalf, collapsing under that weight. Now verse 22. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Golgotha. Um, We often call it Calvary. That is the place, the mountain where Jesus was crucified. We call it Calvary. That comes out of the Latin word calva, meaning skull. And so Calvaria in Latin, place of a skull, uh, Calvary Chapel. It really means place of a skull chapel. But it's where Jesus was crucified. Calvary, Golgotha, same thing. When we go to Jerusalem together in December and January, we'll see that there are two possibilities for where Jesus was crucified. One possibility is called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and we'll go and we'll see that area. But I, I believe the, the greater possibility is a place called Gordon's Calvary. It was discovered in the 1800s. And there we see a mountain that fits the biblical description of the place that Jesus was crucified outside the city walls on a major highway at that time. The Romans always crucified, crucified people at a major intersection so that the other Roman citizens could see and know and be aware. And near that mountain, there is a garden tomb. Just feet away, there is a garden tomb there. And we'll go there, and I believe that that's the place where Jesus was crucified and buried and rose from the dead. Remember that Golgotha means place of a skull. That mountain there that we'll look at, interestingly enough, looks a little bit like a skull. Here's a picture of the face of it. You see that? Can you see how that looks like a skull, or is it just me? You see the eyes and the nose and the teeth? It's very interesting. Golgotha, place of a skull. You go there today, and you look at it, and you go, oh my gosh, it looks like a skull. But if you're smart, you realize that in that arid place, the ground is not real stable. And over 2,000 years, there's probably been a lot of changes uh, on that mountain as it's rained, so on and so forth. But I've seen photos over the last 100 years, and as much as it changes, somehow it always looks like a skull. I don't know if it did 2,000 years ago. Maybe God is just throwing us one of those little bones nowadays, trying to open up our eyes. Here is the place where Jesus was crucified. That's a possibility. Don't read too much into it, but it looks pretty cool. Uh But here's what's interesting. When we go there, we'll stand there looking at it like this. Oh my goodness, that is the place where Jesus was crucified. And right below it is an Arab bus stop. It is the busiest bus stop you've ever seen in your life. It's a hub. It's a hub like that one on Chapala in Santa Barbara. And there's all these Arab buses coming and going, coming and going, in and out, in and out. People filing on, people filing off right there, literally right at the foot 
of that mountain. It's just a small hill right at the foot of it. People coming and going all day and all night long. It is just an amazing picture of what's going on today. That there is the historical reality and the historical fact that Jesus dying upon the cross and people just pass it by all day. They just go along their lives, too busy, on the bus and off the bus, never really stopping to ponder what that historical event might have meant. Realize that the world reset its calendars at the birth of Jesus Christ. There was before Christ and there is after Christ. It was a big deal. And the cross is the pinnacle of that. People today coming and going on buses, never stopping to think what it may have meant. Some more details in our text, verse 23. Mark 15, 23 says, And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. We know from Jewish writings called the Babylonian Talmud and the section called Sanhedrin, verse 43a, that in that culture at that time, some pious women would go to people who were going to be crucified and would offer uh, offer them this mixture. Myrrh and wine. Myrrh is a sap from a plant that had an anesthetic sort of effect. It had a narcotic effect. And these Jewish women, taking their cue from Proverbs 31... Uh, Verse 6, which says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing. Every Jewish woman wanting to be a Proverbs 31 woman would go to where they were suffering and about to be crucified and would offer them this drink that would numb the senses and would numb their physical feeling and would sort of disorient them and really take away the sting of the crucifixion. I want you to note that Jesus refused to take the cup that would remove the sting. Because earlier on in chapter 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had prayed, Father, if there is any way, remove this cup from me. Speaking of the cup of the suffering of the cross to save the world. If there is any way to save the world other than the cross, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, thy will be done. Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father, which was drinking the cup of suffering upon the cross. And having now committed himself to follow through with the Father's will, he refused to dull the effects of it. He refused to take the easy way out. He refused to take the path of least resistance. There's two lessons in that for us. Number one, Jesus was willing to do everything that it took to accomplish our salvation and our healing and our cleansing and our renewing. He took every bit, the full brunt of the full force of the cross. Number two, when we are called to go the way of the cross, the way of self-denial, the way of surrender, laying down our rights, someone will always come and offer you a shortcut. The easy, always, huh? The easy way out, the compromise, the thing that will numb it a little bit. Jesus said, no. I'm gonna walk the will of the Father because it is right no matter what the cost. And so because of that, The Father was pleased. Listen, the sufferings of Jesus Christ are not senseless. They accomplish something. They please the Father. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Isaiah 53, verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The rest of the verse says, if he would offer himself a guilt offering on behalf of the many. The Lord was pleased to have Jesus go through these sufferings. Without context, that seems morbid and perverse. But realize that the context is that he would accomplish the forgiveness for us. And so because the Lord loves you so much, there's so much confusion in that word. The Lord loves you. That word does so much in the hearts of people. If you say it to one another in a powerful, intimate context, when someone fails to say it, When someone abuses the meaning of it, that word is so powerful, but strip away everything you've ever thought about it and realize that the expression of God's love is that he himself became a man, draped himself in humanity, subjected himself to the torture of man, having his body broken and his blood spilt, every bit of it upon a cross to accomplish you being able to know your creator. That is love. That is the very expression of love. That is the very essence of love. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends, Jesus said in John 15. 
and he laid down his life, and he did it willingly. And because it is able to restore us back to God the Father and buy us eternity in heaven, it pleased the Lord because it would get you to heaven. Next verse, Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. God is so in love with you that when his son died upon the cross, it was a fragrant aroma to him and anticipation of you being forgiven and you being in heaven for eternity. Hebrews, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Which one of you wouldn't go through untellable suffering knowing if in the end you're able to save your child from sure death. You would do it with joy and with gladness if you could save your child from something. That's what God did. You're his child. He formed you in his mother's womb. Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him, despised or said to the shame because you could be forgiven. And here's the result, Jude 24 and 25. Jude only has one chapter. Verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all men and now and forever. Amen. I want you to see how verse 24 ends. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That is what Jesus accomplished for us. That we'll stand before an absolutely holy, perfect, scary, gnarly God. You don't understand. Excuse me. I'm getting excited. How gnarly this God is. Uh, Seraphim. Have you heard of these things? These angels. We think angels are cute little fat little things flying around. They're not cute little fat little things. They're gnarly, gnarly, gnarly. These guys have six wings. And they've got eyes throughout and multiple heads. These, if you saw, anytime anyone in the Bible sees an angel, they fall down immediately. These things are so gnarly. These angels have six wings. They're around the throne of God day and night. With two wings, they fly. That's good. But with two wings, they cover their eyes because they dare not look upon the holiness of God. With two wings, they cover their feet because they are in the presence of God as a sign of humility. And it says that they sing 24-7, 365 for all of eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that they never cease to sing it. And when Isaiah was opened up to the reality of heaven in Isaiah chapter 6, and he heard these creatures singing that, their voices were so powerful that it shook the stones of the temple that he stood in and the thing almost fell down. Now, if these creatures are that magnificent and that gnarly and if their voices are that big and booming and yet they cover their faces and their feet in the presence of God and they never stop speaking of how holy he is, he's pretty gnarly. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, you will stand before him blameless with great joy. Blame, you won't have to cover your eyes. You won't have to cover your feet. Made higher than the angels, the Bible says. Blameless, no shame before the one who has seen your heart and knows every thought, no shame. Blameless and with great joy. Not just saying, oh, we made it. Did you make it? You made it. Oh, we made it. No, it won't be like that. It will be with great joy. The cross of Jesus Christ, what he did for us is absolutely unbelievable. A few details we need to cover. Verse 24. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription above him read, King of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And then verse 28, which the NIV has in the margin. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. As I said before, some of the manuscripts that the translators of the NIV used did not include that. And so it is possible that verse 28 was later added by scribes as a commentary. 
This happened to fulfill this scripture. But other ancient manuscripts have it in there. It's a debate within Christianity concerning manuscript evidence, but don't debate it too long. It doesn't tell us anything new. It's really no big deal. It's simply saying, and Jesus fulfilled another prophecy. No, duh, hello. In his birth and life and death and resurrection, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament. And this is another one, the fact that they divided his garments. Wasn't a big deal, really. Uh, the Romans crucified people naked. And any of their belongings, the Roman soldiers could divide, <clears throat> excuse me, amongst them. And so they were dividing the garments. No big deal. That was a cultural norm. The thing that makes it a cool deal is that it was prophesied concerning Jesus Christ in the cross 1,000 years before it ever took place. Hundreds of years before the cross was ever used as a means of of um, uh, putting people to death. This was written in Psalm 22. Let's look at verses 14 through 18. A thousand years before the cross, a perfect description of it in prophecy. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joints. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. All my bones are out of joint. Realize that as a victim was crucified, there they hung upon the cross. All the weight of their body was placed upon their diaphragm. The victim was able to inhale, but they were not able to exhale. And so they would die a death of suffocation. And so to exhale, they had to lift themselves up on those nails to get that breath out. You can imagine the nails through the wrist, and as you lift yourself and your flesh rotates along those rusty nails, the searing pain that would go through your body. The victims, after lifting themselves for hours, we have historical records of some people living nine days upon the cross, having to exhale or they would suffocate. After doing that for so long, their elbows and their shoulders would dislocate and their arms would become nine inches longer than when they got on the cross. Once their arms dislocated, the victims would begin to push themselves up with their legs, pushing themselves up on that single nail that was going through their feet. Pretty soon, their legs would begin to quiver under the pressure. Their muscles would begin to cramp for lack of oxygen, and their legs would cease, and they would begin to die. When the Romans wanted to make the death quicker, they would come along and break the legs of the victim. That is what they did to the two thieves. They broke their legs, meaning they could no longer lift themselves to exhale, meaning their death by suffocation would come now quickly. Prophecy of Jesus Christ upon the cross I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joints. Verse 15. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Remember upon the cross, Jesus said, I thirst in another gospel. And thou dost lay me in the dust of the earth. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That meant nothing when this was written a thousand years before Jesus Christ. Crucifixions didn't happen at that time. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. God wants you to know that the cross was not a mistake. It was not an afterthought. God purposed it from the very beginning to accomplish your salvation by forgiving you of sins. So important that you read the Bible and see the fulfilled prophecies. Verse 27 is another one. It says he was crucified there with two robbers. That wasn't unusual either. Multiple people would be crucified at the same time. The only thing that's unusual is it was prophesied 700 years earlier about Jesus. Again, in Isaiah 53, this time verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him, speaking of Jesus, Messiah, a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, speaking about him coming into his kingdom. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. God wants you to know that it's not a mistake, and he wants you to know some little details. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. Jewish time reckoning. Jewish time reckoning started at sunup and at sundown. At sunup, they would begin to count the hours, and at sundown, they would begin to count the hours again. Sundown was when they say a new day began. They, generally speaking, it was 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. So the third hour, counting from 6 a.m., is 9 a.m. Jesus was crucified upon the cross at 9 a.m. It's as if Mark, in writing it here, is saying, I remember the exact time. It was 9 a.m. when they nailed him to the cross. And it simply says, and they crucified him. 
No details in the Gospels to be found. These medical details, these suffering that I shared with you, we don't find those in the Gospels, number one, because we don't have to, because every citizen in that day had seen someone be crucified. They knew the horror of it. They didn't mention it. They didn't go on to describe it. In fact, um, in studying historical things, I found that uh, cultured Romans wouldn't even say the word cross. They wouldn't even mention crucifixion. Cultured Romans, it was so horrific, it was so horrendous, it was so outlandish, they wouldn't even mention it. And so the author here, writing to the Romans, essentially, to Gentiles, Mark says, and they crucified him. It's hard for us to imagine the pain that went on on the cross as he was pulling himself up to breathe. Remember that his back was scourged open and every vertebrae was exposed and his innards were exposed and he was dragging that up and down the cross. It's just unbelievable. In fact, they created a term for it in Latin, excruciatus, ex, out, cruciatus, cross, out of the cross, excruciating. When you use that word excruciating, it is the word designated for what Jesus went through on the cross. But listen, people, I have to tell you, what he experienced physically is nothing compared to what he experienced spiritually. The weight of sin placed upon him. You know what that feels like. Christian, you know what the weight of sin feels like. When you've done something wrong or you've just even been exposed to some horrible, sinful situation, just that sickening weight of wrongness. And that's why we run to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. And isn't this a word? Lord, cleanse me. Take this burden from me. We, even as fallen sinful people, know the weightiness of sin at times. Listen, think about Jesus. He was absolutely sinless, undefiled, and innocent. He hated sin with his entire being. He was a perfect holy God from all time past. Evil contradicted his character. He rebelled against darkness and he was revulsed by impurity. And yet all of those things were placed, excuse me, on him at the cross, not in him. That would be theologically incorrect. There was no sin in him. The sin was placed upon him. You see, we have sin in us. Romans chapter 7. We have sin in us and we have the weight of sin, the guilt of it on us. What Jesus did was take that weight of it off of us and it was placed on him. We may still have sin in us until we see the Lord face to face, but the weight of it being on us is removed and that is what was placed on Jesus. It says in Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 12. He bore the sin of many. Galatians 3, 13. He became a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He was made sin on our behalf. In 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins upon the cross. That which Jesus hated most, which he had nothing to do with sin, all of it was placed upon him. It's much more than that. Much more than the weight of sin, he had the wrath of God directed at him. Can you relate? Have you ever had the wrath of someone you love or respect directed toward you? Do you know how that feels? Isn't that the worst feeling? Someone that you love or respect or look up to and their wrath for a moment is moved towards you and there's that clash of personality and there's that sinking feeling of separation and oh no, I don't want to be separated from this person. I don't want their wrath against me. I want to be connected with them. Jesus Christ is God eternal. God the Son and God the Father are always one. But there came this somehow a separation as sin was placed upon him and he took the wrath of God, the wrath of his own father directed at him. That is why he says in verse 34, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was quoting there Psalm 22. We read verses 14 through 18 of it earlier. When he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Any Jew who was there would have went, Psalm 22. They didn't have verse and chapter numbers then. If a rabbi wanted to call to mind a certain text, he would begin to quote it. 
And so when Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Those Jewish women who were there, the men had abandoned him. Those Jewish women who were there would have went, Psalm 22, spoke of this very moment. But it was much more than that. He didn't just want people to think about the psalm in a very real way. He was decrying that there was now a separation between him and God as he took the wrath and the weight of sin. Wayne Grudem has an excellent excellent systematic theology. I recommend it to you. You can buy it at our bookstore here. Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. I want to read to you what he says about this phrase, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Just a couple paragraphs. In quoting this psalm, Jesus is quoting a cry of desolation that also has implicit in its context an unremitting faith in the God who will ultimately deliver him. Nevertheless, it remains a very real cry of anguish because the suffering has gone on so long and no release in sight. With this context for the quotation, it is better to understand the question, why have you forsaken me? As meaning, why have you left me for so long? This is the sense it has in Psalm 22. Jesus, in his human nature, knew he would have to bear our sins, to suffer and to die. But in his human consciousness, he probably did not know how long this suffering would take. Yet to bear the guilt, excuse me, of millions of sins, even for a moment, would cause the greatest anguish of soul. To face the deep and furious wrath of an infinite God, even for an instant, would cause the most profound fear. But Jesus' suffering was not over in a minute or two, or ten. When would it end? Could there be yet more weight of sin, yet more wrath of God? Hour after hour it went on. The dark weight of sin and the deep wrath of God poured over Jesus in wave after wave. Jesus at last cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why must the suffering go on for so long? Oh God, my God, will you ever bring it to an end? Then at last, Jesus knew his suffering was nearing completion. He knew he had consciously borne all the wrath of the Father against our sins. For God's anger had abated and the awful heaviness of sin was being removed. He knew that all that remained was to yield up his spirit to his heavenly Father and die. With a shout of victory, Jesus cried out, It is finished. Then with a loud voice once more, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he voluntarily gave up the life that no one could take from him. And he died. As Isaiah had predicted, he poured out his soul to death and he bore the sin of many. God the Father saw the fruit of the travail of his soul and was satisfied. Everything. Every sin, every bit of guilt, every wrong thing, he took the weight of it and God was satisfied. Satisfied. Christian, you absolutely have to know today, doctrinally, that God is satisfied with you. Any anger, any wrath, Jesus took upon the cross. Friends, he took it all. He said at the end, it is finished. God is not mad at you. God is not sad with you. Jesus dealt with it upon the cross that he might be glad with you, satisfied with you, happy that you might have intimacy of relationship and love. That is what Jesus Christ did upon the cross and it is absolutely unbelievable, indescribable. Notice that it was dark for three hours. It says that it was dark in the whole land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. That is from noon till three. I believe that it is at that time that God was pouring upon him the sins of the world and that is why it went dark. In mourning and in judgment, the very sky itself went black as Jesus took the black weight of our sin. Foreshadowed in Exodus chapter 10 where one of the last plagues that came against Egypt was that it went black in the sky for three days and for three nights. And then after that, the Passover lamb was sacrificed and Israel was delivered. It was a foreshadowing of the fact that when Jesus took our sins, the plague, the curse of it, it went dark for three hours. After that, the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, was crucified and we have been delivered from sin, delivered from shame, delivered from guilt. And so it says in Hebrews ten nineteen through 22. Since therefore, brethren, 
We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Remember that it said in our text that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. As his flesh was torn, the veil in the temple that separated people from the presence of the God was torn in two forever, never to be repaired. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The cross of Jesus Christ is a horrendous historical fact, but it is the most wonderful thing that ever took place because now you have assurance of forgiveness. And now we have to enter into the presence of God with boldness. It's so important that you read the Bible daily, that you might be assured every day because every day the enemy is going to come and go, you're not forgiven. You're guilty. He's going to try to put the weight upon you. People are going to try to put the weight upon you. You'll try to take the weight upon yourself out of some sick sense of religiosity. It is a shame to hold against yourself what Jesus Christ buried in the deepest sea, removed as far as the east is from the west. And that you might then extend forgiveness to others. In the same way that we have been forgiven, we should forgive others. Listen, the cross not only dealt with what you did wrong, but what with what was done wrong to you. The cross did not only deal with what you did wrong, but with what has been done wrong to you. Jesus had all wrong done to him. He surrendered every right and took every beating. And so the way of the cross is to surrender and to forgive. And the promise of the cross is abundant life, a crown of life, a heavenly home, a new name, Answers to prayer, assurance of faith, cleansing, clothing, comfort, companionship, deliverance, divine sonship, everlasting life, fellowship with God, fruitfulness, the gifts of the Spirit, glory after death, God's care and protection, growth, guidance, hope, inheritance, joy, knowledge, freedom, peace, power, renewal, rest, restoration, resurrection, rich rewards, spiritual fullness, spiritual healing, spiritual light, spiritual treasures, strength, temporal blessings, understanding, wisdom, and victory through the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the cross. How unbelievable how unfathomable, how wonderful. And right now we would just agree together in prayer and ask you that, Lord, if there's anybody in here that has not yet recognized that they are a sinner that needs to be saved, that at this moment you would break their hearts and their will and you would invite them to salvation and that they would come and say, Jesus, I understand now what you did. Thank you for taking my place. Forgive me. And at that moment, thank you, God, that you'll save them. We agree in prayer, and we ask you to save every single person in this room. If that's you today, you must confess with your heart, God, I'm a sinner. I am wrong, but you are right. Thank you for what Jesus did. Forgive me, God. That moment, he forgives you. Gives you all these things that we just read. He begins a process in your life of renewal. And then after this life, you have the promise of eternity with him, which is perfection and beyond imagination. You will be before him, blameless and with great joy. Human words can't get to how great the Father's love is for us. Let's worship the Lord. You've got to thank him for the cross.